If you were with us throughout the season of Epiphany in, uh, in January and earlier in February, we, we, we talked a lot week after week about the kind of life that flows when we dare to let God's unconditional, irrevocable love claim us as we are in all of our beauty and all of our brokenness. What we didn't quite get to in that reflection is how the moment after Jesus is baptized in love, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Or to return to last week's scripture and the season of Lent that we're in, the moment that Jesus comes out, that he shares his true identity with his disciples, his closest friends, the moment he dares to shine forth in glory and let others see him, the fullness of who he is, He has to go down the mountain to face a world where his identity comes into conflict with injustice and abuses of power. The events that we will recall in a few weeks from now that take place during Holy Week. That is immediately following this high, this mountaintop experience of love is that letdown that comes afterward, that as the echo of God's voice declaring Jesus' belovedness fades, he is forced to confront in the silence another voice that lurks in the shadows within. Now, our English translation interprets this voice in the gospel as the devil. But there is no two-horned man with a pitchfork and a bright red face in our text. Let's just be clear. That's not... That's not what's happening here. Because of all the baggage that this word carries, it might actually help to note that the the Greek word used here in the original text is diavolu, which literally means the slanderous one, the accuser, namely one who tempts us, taunts us, makes false accusations. That's what's happening. All of which is to say that As the voice of his belovedness fades, that old accusing voice creeps back in. Really? Really, this voice says? You you think you're special? You think you... Really? Come on. You are God's beloved child. You're just another nobody from nowhere. What, What is it that people say? Oh, yeah, what good has ever come out of Nazareth anyways? If this is who you are, prove it. Show me, convince me, turn this stone into a loaf of bread. That is the the first taunting, accusing voice that Jesus has to grapple with, as do we, is that voice that compels us to act from a place of feeling small, feeling less than, of denying who we truly are. You're not beloved. That's not your identity. It's that voice that keeps telling you that to be enough, you have to keep trying to convince others that you are enough, including those who really have no interest in loving you as you are. It's a no-win game. Will this taunting, tempting voice be the one that Jesus listens to, that we listen to, when it when it rings loudly in his ear or from the mouths of others? Will he still cling 
to the truth proclaimed at his baptism and on the mountain. When that voice rings out. But then the moment that Jesus resists this voice by clinging to the word spoken by God, another slanderous voice tempts him. Okay, imagine all the kingdoms of the world. Imagine what you could do with that kind of power, Jesus, that kind of influence. Imagine all the good that you could do, the authority, the wealth. People would have to bow down to you. You could make them do whatever you want, including the good things. All you have to do is bow down before me, and it will all be yours. That is, if you want people to listen to you, if you want to make the world in your image, make people do good, well, the easiest, most effective way to do that, we all know, is to make them. Give them no choice. Coerce them if you have to. It can be a tempting one, isn't it? Will you listen to this voice? Will you grasp for, bow down before this alluring power, Jesus? Or will you accept your human limits and stay, stay true to the ways of God, to your calling? Once again, Jesus resists this voice by clinging to, grounding his identity in the voice of God. God's love, which knows that we cannot legislate morality. We cannot force others to change or do something that they don't want to do, and that doing so will always end in a form of violence itself. At this point, the accusing voice switches tactics. Since Jesus resists by grounding himself in the voice of God and in Scripture... This voice also quotes the good book. Cunning it is. Note that sometimes the slanderous one speaks in the accent of religious folks. But scripture itself says that God won't let anything bad happen to you, Jesus. Before you embark on this whole, you know, dedicating yourself to God thing, why not test it out first? Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to know that you'll be safe, that nothing bad will happen to you? I mean, wouldn't it be a shame? It'd kind of suck if you kind of did this whole thing, dedicated yourself to God, worshipped God, followed God's ways, did all the right things, and then you still ended up having to suffer? That kind of sucks. Don't you want to test it out first? Make sure you can avoid all that? It's sort of an inverse of that question, that perennial human question, why? That we ask whenever things go wrong or bad, why me? Why? Why don't you stop the suffering, the evil? It's not actually a bad idea, we might think. If, if God is good, then God wouldn't let me suffer, so... Why don't I test it out, try it out? Otherwise, well, what's the point? <laughs> this whole believing in God thing. 
It doesn't keep me from having to endure hardship. Except we know that Jesus knows that daring to stand in the fullness of who God created us to be and who God calls us to be in this world means that we will face rejection. Maybe by family members, by churches, by those with power and privilege and authority, by all of those that want us to stay small and familiar, confined to that religious and cultural box that, that we've been handed. Each of these voices test Jesus' willingness to trust and live from the truth of the other voice that proclaimed his irrevocable belovedness at his baptism and transfiguration. And when we read Genesis alongside this gospel, I think it helps us to see that, that this is also what Adam, Adam, and Eve are also wrestling with. That contrary, again, to what we've been told our whole lives, Genesis 2 and 3 are not about original sin. It's not a simplistic children's tale about obedience and doing what you're told or what happens when you're naughty. If anything, Genesis 1 is an account of original blessing and belovedness, right? Adam and Eve are made in the image and likeness of God. And when God has created everything, God looks out and says, dang, that's good. I'm in love. Wow. This comes first just as it did for Jesus, just as it does for us. But again, almost immediately after this proclamation, Adam and Eve hear the voice of a room that is like the diavolu in the gospel. This ancient Hebrew word, a room, speaks to a voice that is crafty and cunning and shrewd. So there Adam and Eve are in the midst of a lush garden paradise with everything they need, a blessed creation living in harmony when, when suddenly this crafty, cunning voice enters the scene with a proposition. Did God say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, the woman replies, actually, all of this all of this is good to eat. Can you believe it? Have you had the pineapple? Oh, my God. The only tree that we can't eat from is that, that one in the middle. If you do, you shall die, God said. Really? This voice responds, you won't die. God just knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Huh? Sounds pretty great. That is, rather than standing in their belovedness, their enoughness, this voice makes them believe that they need, they need this one thing that they don't have in order to be complete. Kind of like, you, you know, when you're, you're living your life and you're just fine, you're content, and then all of a sudden you see that commercial for that 
thing, or your friend gets that thing, and suddenly it's all you can think about and you have to have it. You can't not have, maybe even a bigger and better one, actually. You're going to go online and get it right now, in fact. Call it a midlife crisis, whatever, you know, feel better about it that way. It sounds a bit ridiculous, I know, but, but here's the thing. Adam and Eve, they are already created in the image and likeness of God. But rather than embracing this, living from the fullness of this identity, they chase after the one thing that they don't have. And in this case, they grasp for the power and knowledge, thinking that that will set them free. Now, it's worth noting that the only other place the word arum appears in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament is in the book of Proverbs, where it is actually translated in positive ways. For instance, to describe the actions of a prudent man, which I note because we like to think that this devilish voice is one that is obviously evil. Obviously, you say no to that. Obviously, it's wrong and bad, right? That it's easy to recognize like a little red man with, with a pitchfork. Avoid. Avoid the little red man with a pitchfork. But the voices that Jesus and Adam and Eve wrestle with, they're much more nuanced and complicated, much more seductive than that. You'll notice that scripture doesn't try to describe a figure in our gospel reading, this devil. It simply refers to a voice and the way that it sounds, the kinds of questions it asks. You don't have to believe in talking snakes to recognize the voice in Genesis. I think if we're honest with ourselves, each of us is more familiar with this diavolu, this our room, these accusing, taunting, tempting voices than we usually let on. In fact, if you're anything like me, sometimes you can hear this voice as clearly as if it's coming from someone right in front of you. Or maybe sometimes it does come from someone who is right in front of you. So loudly does this voice speak in our world and within our minds that it can be hard to even notice it as such. We can, we can find ourselves giving into it so often that in time we can hardly distinguish this voice from the other voice that speaks deep within. We may have even lost our ability to hear that voice altogether. As I sat with these stories this week, I was reminded of this quote by the great African-American theologian and mystic, Dr. Howard Thurman, who is Dr. King's mentor and a mentor to the whole civil rights movement. And he said, there are two questions that we must ask ourselves in life. The first is, where am I going? And the second is who will go with me? If you ever get these questions in the wrong order, he says, you're in trouble. It's one you have to keep coming back to, huh? I know I have. It's been a while before I could 
preach on this. I've been sitting with it and mulling it over. Where am I going? Or as we're calling it, we're phrasing it this season, what am I seeking? Am I seeking wealth, power, authority, security, status, the big house, the corner office, the perfect family? All those things that that voice tempts Jesus with? Or am I seeking love and grace, authentic connections, forgiveness and accountability, mutuality, generosity? What you seek is what you become. Where you are going, there you are. If you are chasing power and wealth and the big house, the corner office, the perfect family, you're going to end up sacrificing anything and anyone that gets in the way or that you perceive to be in the way, including your illusions of what a perfect family in life look like. You challenge me on that. You tell me I did something wrong. No, no, no. We're supposed to just get along. Don't bring up that hard stuff. The voice of the tempter tempts Jesus and Adam and Eve, again, with that first set. The very thing that our world tells us to chase, to go after, to seek. The very things that commercials tell us will fill us up, make us feel like enough. If you just get this product, then you will feel like you're enough. Then you will be enough. Only problem is they... They keep you coming back over and over again. There is no enough. The second question, who will go with me? Or as we're phrasing it, who will you listen to as you are going there? Which voice, which voices give you the news? Whose perspectives of the world on money, on social issues, on Politics fill your mind. And whose do you fail to consider? Whose do you fail to listen to, to be challenged by? Which voices are absent in your life? The voice that Jesus is tempted by is, again, the voice of our world that is aligned with power and status and influence, it tries to answer that first question, where are you going with those things which throw off the whole journey? But also, if we listen to that second voice, that second question that Thurman names, put who will you listen to first, then you're also going to be in trouble. Because we will never be at home in ourselves. We won't we won't be able to, to trust that we are enough. We will always be trying to shape shift, to just fit in with whatever crowd, whoever will accept us, whether it's a church or a gang or a political party. In order to gain their acceptance, we will do whatever it takes. We will go what after, after whatever they tell us to do. Even if it undermines the belovedness 
of who God says we are. We will try to stay tightly knit into our family, even if they make us deny who God created us to be. Who I listen to will shape where I go. Who I become. Without ever ever having even given that first question much thought. But as Jesus says elsewhere, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world? Success, fame, wealth, health, a happy family. What does it profit you if you gain everything the world tells you to value, but you have to forfeit your own soul in the process? Where are you going? That's the first question we are faced with in this season of Lent. Where are you going? What are you after, really? And which voices will you listen to to get you there? May God... And God's love claim us on this wild, bewildering, wonder-filled journey. Amen.